Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Strength to Strength, and if it's your first time, we strive to bring topics on here that will make you think about how to conduct yourself in the kingdom and think about the work of the kingdom that's going on in the world today. My name is Sam Bear. I come to you from Calgary, Alberta, Canada, which we recently returned here from Boston after spending about a year there and um, attending Sattler. Um, and we're back in Calgary to plant a church. There's a few of us families that are settling here. And if you think about us, pray for us. It's a city of about 1.6 million people. Um, from what my experience, there's not a lot of light in this city. So it feels like we're going up against the powers of darkness in a very real way in planting a church here. So we would appreciate any prayer. Um, this morning we have Brother John D. Welcome back, Brother John. We've had you on here numerous times. We always appreciate the messages that you bring here. Um, I've gotten to know you quite a bit better in the past year, I would say. And Brother John was my mentor as I was at Sattler College. And I really appreciated his input in my life through that. And he's here to share on our world, our wealth. Some of you will recognize that as a message um, that is on YouTube. And I've listened to it myself a couple times already. We re li recently listened to it as a church, and it always stirs me to the core of my being to hear this message, and I'm looking forward to hearing it again this morning. Um, before we get started, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for taking care of us once again. Thank you for a good night's rest. Thank you that we can rise in the morning with joy in our hearts and hope because of the work Christ has done, because the kingdom has come. Thank you for the privilege of being called to work in this kingdom. Yes. We thank you for this gathering here this morning. Thank you for the technology that we can gather from many parts of the globe and be encouraged and shaped by truth. Be with Brother John as he shares this morning. I pray that his mind is sharp and he would speak in a way that would stir our hearts, that would whet our appetites, that would convict us, that would encourage us so that we can go forth from this meeting humbled and thinking seriously about the lives that we lead so that we can honor our King day in and day out. Just be with each one. I thank you for your presence here. We just pray that you would touch each heart. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead, Brother John. Well, good morning. Can you all hear me well? Good. The story I'm about to give you, I understand, was the, a favorite story that Sigmund Freud, of all people, uh, considered his favorite. I'm not sure what he got out of the story, but it certainly speaks to us as Christians. The story is told of a sailor that was shipwrecked on a South Sea island. 
and uh, he got to shore, and there he was seized by the natives, and they carried him to the middle of the island and put him on a rude throne, and uh, he was king of the island, and they told him he would be king for a year. Well, little by little, he began to wonder what happened to the other kings that were kings for a year, and so he asked, and they said, well, at the end of the year, uh, they take him to a deserted island somewhere, and there he's left to starve. But this king was a wise king. He decided, well, he had a year to prepare for this. So he sent uh, people to the island. He sent farmers there, uh, uh, irrigation engineers, uh, builders, uh, uh, all kinds of people uh, to plant things. And by the time he was banished to the island, uh, there were beautiful buildings there, and there was an agricultural uh, uh, economy there, so that uh, he actually was banished to an island of, of wealth and riches. Uh, you know, that's that's a very, very interesting story because the Bible makes it very clear that we're here to prepare for the future, and uh, we are to lay up treasures in heaven. We're supposed to prepare for a, a, a wonderful future as well. And Jesus made it very clear how we do that. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And he said, uh, we do it by doing this. Sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old. A treasure in the heavens that faileth not. So he told us to do exactly what this man did uh, to prepare for the future. Now, I'd like to give uh, three points this morning. Uh, I'd like to talk about the world we live in. I'd like to talk about the reality. Then I'd like to talk about the requirement. I'd like to talk then about the resources. And finally, the response. We live in a world of desperate opportunity. The world has between 7 and 8 billion people. We're told that one these statistics come off the uh, Internet, so you can look them up as well. We're told that 1 billion one-seventh of those people survive on less than a dollar a day. Two billion survive on less than two dollars a day. In other words, nearly half of the world is struggling to find enough food and water to survive just for another day. With the amount of money that we spend on French fries, uh, that's the world we live in. 29,000 children die every day from preventable disease or starvation. Now, they die in obscurity. We don't see the awful wide-eyed terror and agony of their death. To make this more real, there's a, a teenage uh, an organization called Teen Mania. They put on an event every year to, to uh, make people aware of what's happening in our world. And one year, they decided to put a goldfish in a bowl in front of the audience. And someone would go up and take the goldfish out of the bowl and lay it on the table. And the audience would watch it struggle and die. In every uh, event that they presented before the goldfish died, someone couldn't stand that and rushed up and grabbed the goldfish and put it back into the bowl. Now, the fact is, if that had been a human, it would have been a whole lot worse. The golden rule is we're supposed to do as to others as we would have them do unto you. Suppose a starving child in another country, knew that there was a rich country like the United States and that there were many people there who could have alleviated their suffering if they would have sacrificed to do so. 29,000 children a day, 
uh, will die as a result of preventable disease, preventable disease or starvation. Now, we have about that many people in the local town, so I try to think, what would I think if all of the people in Chambersburg died today? In fact, before this session is over, 1,000 children will be dead uh, of preventable disease or starvation. Now, if a tsunami or an earthquake uh, happened, the whole world would be mobilized. And if we heard about 29,000 deaths in that tsunami, uh, we would say that's terrible. But, uh, you know, the fact is that is happening every day, all day. How much would it take to present this mind-boggling tragedy? Well, we're told that $13 billion a year would provide the basic nutrition to every starving person in the world. Now, $13 billion a year is a lot of money, but uh, the Bible, uh, we are told that American Christians spend $21 billion a year on soft drinks. They spend $100 billion a year on Christmas gifts. So that amount of money could be easily provided by just the Christians in the United States. $3 billion a year would save a half a million children from blindness due to lack of vitamin A. American Christians spend $4 billion a year on cosmetics. $9 billion a year would provide safe drinking water to all in the world. American Christians spend $5 billion a year on bottled water. And that's billion, that's not million. The most heart-wrenching, though, is the slavery that happens. 246 million children are in child labor in slavery. And I'm going to read an account that I copied down. My sister is 10 years old. Every morning at 7 o'clock, she goes to the bonded labor man, and every night at 9, she comes home. Now, you figure that out. That's about, uh, I think that's about 12 hours a day. He treats her badly. He hits her if he thinks she is working slowly or if she talks to other children. He yells at her. He comes looking for her if she's sick and cannot go to work. I feel this is very difficult for her. I don't care about school or playing. I don't care about any of that. All I want is to bring my sister home from the bonded labor man. For 600 rupees, I can bring her home. That is our only chance to get her back. We don't have 600 rupees, and we will never have 600 rupees. Now, many people have contacted me after hearing this and wanted to do something about it. And so I checked into it a little bit. And, and the sad part is, even if you sent the money, that would not solve the problem. She would be back in slave labor very quickly, uh, even after uh, she's freed one time. The family would soon have another emergency, and she'd be back again. And so it's a much larger problem than just paying the 600 rupees. Uh, this is this is a real uh, heart-wrenching situation. When a desperately poor family has a financial need, such as a medical, me- medical emergency, a funeral, even just to put food on the table, they often have only one place to turn, the local money lender, whom we might call a loan shark. He will lend them money in exchange for their child's labor. Because they usually can't read the contract, they often don't know what they're agreeing to. The wages are so low and the interest rate so high that the loan can virtually never be repaid. All the money earned goes only to pay the interest. Some children work 12 to 14 hours a day for many years to pay off a $25 loan. The working conditions are usually horrendous. Now, at the time of the report that I gave you about that girl, 
uh, she had been in bondage for one year in exchange for an advance of about $10. She worked 14 hours a day, six and a half days a week, and earned about eight cents a day. That's a sad story. It is because of God's grace that you were born in the United States. Try to imagine your life if you had been born as that girl was born. How do you feel in the morning as you walk to work? Through no fault of your own, you're about to spend 14 hours crouched over, crouched over a basket of tobacco. Your hands and wrists will hurt, and you will be beaten if you roll cigarettes too slowly or talk to the child sitting next to you. You may have a matchbook put under your chin so that if it falls, the manager will know you looked up and he will punish you. You're likely to grow up deformed, unable to live a normal life. You may actually be chained to the wall. Think further. If you knew that there were people in another country who could free you, what would you want them to do? And what if they chose not to do it? So that's the world we live in. And it, it's a it's a greater problem than what you and I can solve. And God isn't looking uh, for us to solve all the problems in the world. He's He's only looking at what kind of response we make with the resources we have to the needs uh, that come to us. So what is the requirement? God has repeatedly admonished us and warned us about our responsibility. And I would like to just read a few verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 says this. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know it? And shall he not render to every man according to his works? Now, there would have been a time when people would not have known the facts that I just gave you. But because of the information age we live in, we all know this is happening. And uh, the question is, how do we live? I often think, uh, just use the example of the beds we sleep in. You know, most of the people in the world don't sleep in a bed. They they wouldn't have room for beds. They live in a one-room hut. So they have their bedding rolled up under the chairs and under the tables, and they get those out at night and sleep on the floor. Now, we have beds, but the problem with with that is that beds usually are not enough for people. They have to have a bedroom suite, and it has to match the decor, and they have to have a mattress they spend hundreds of dollars on so it uh, satisfies every uh, ache and pain that they may have sleeping. Uh, and that's what tends to happen if we're not careful. We don't think about our needs. We think about our wants, and, and that's the problem. Uh, let me read another verse from Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 28, 27 says this. He that giveth unto the poor shall not lack, but he that hideth his eyes shall have many a curse. And I have to wonder uh, if uh, some of the things that happen in Christian families are not directly related to this situation. Proverbs 21, 13 says, if we stop our ears at the cry of the poor, God will not hear us. Ezekiel 16.49 talks about the sin of Sodom, and I would like to just read that. Uh, we would all say the sin of Sodom was uh, sodomy and homosexuality, and it certainly was. But it says in verse 49 of uh, 16 of Ezekiel, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters, Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And then the next verse talks about their abomination. So uh, the sin of sex, uh, homosexuality certainly was part of it. 
But it almost seems to me reading these verses that God puts that kind of selfishness in the same category as he puts sexual sin. Um, God takes our attitude toward the poor very seriously is what I'm trying to, to get across. In fact, in Matthew 25, we all know that at the final judgment, there'll be nothing said about whether you were born again. There will be nothing said about many of the things that we spend time preaching. The only thing that's mentioned there is, did you feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit people in prison? What did you do about the disenfranchised people all around you? The whole judgment will be based on that. You say, well, what about the new birth? Well, I have to imply from that chapter that if you didn't do those things, you were, in fact, not born again. Uh, in fact, John the Baptist was baptizing and uh, people were coming to be baptized. And he said, well, I want to see evidence before I baptize you people. I want to see evidence that you repented. I don't know what kind of evidence you would have looked for, but uh, when they asked John what he was uh, looking for, he said, if you have two coats, give away one. If you have extra food, do likewise. Uh, if that's really what repentance looks like, I have to wonder sometimes how much genuine repentance does actually happen uh, in our circles and, and in my own life. Uh, in fact, uh, that's <laughs> we have Zacchaeus a few chapters later. Uh, Jesus comes to his house. I have no idea what they talked about, but Zacchaeus uh, responded about in, in relation to his stuff. He said, I'm going to give half my goods away and I'm going to restore everything that I took on dishonestly four times. And Jesus didn't say, well, Zacchaeus, you're getting the cart ahead of the horse. You need to get born again first. He just said this day salvation has come to this house. So this is a very important subject. And, and it has grieved me through the years that we don't hear much teaching on it. Luke 16, we know the story of the uh, rich man and Lazarus. Uh as far as we know, he may have been an upstanding Israelite, obeying everything meticulously to the letter. There was only one reason why he found himself where he was. And it says, Jesus says, in your lifetime, you had your good things and Lazarus his evil things. And that's the only reason given that he ended up where he did. Uh, this is a great blind spot in American Christianity. And, uh, Blind spots can be pretty devastating. There was a time when many Christians thought it was right to own slaves. And we say, how in the world could anybody have been so blind as to justify and prove, try to prove from the scriptures even that such an awful institution was right? Will somebody look back in the future and say, how in the world did these Christians that had to have their bedroom suites and their lavish uh, lifestyles and uh, dream houses and uh, expensive cars. How in the world were they so blind in light of all they knew from the information age they lived in? How in the world did they justify living that way? We all know that James 4 says that faith and works have to be together or the faith doesn't mean anything. First John three seventeen and 18, it says, if you uh, uh, harden your heart against the needs around you, how does the love of God dwell in you? In other words, it, it's impossible if if you've gone after your own things and have been selfish in the light of the tremendous needs around us. Uh, God's love doesn't do that. So uh, if we live that way, we're proving that we don't have the kind of love that God has. We really don't have his love. 
James 1.27 says, Pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the widows and the fatherless. There are 143 million orphans in our world. They say there's a Christian site, I've never been able to find it, uh, where you can see an atheist group playing the song, Jesus Loves Me, and all the time they're showing pictures of emaciated, starving children from all over the world. And uh, <clears throat> they also have a picture of the cross with a, 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 a cancellation sign over it. And at the end, they say, he is your God. They are your rules. Go to hell. In other words, you're not doing what God told you to do. So that's our world. Uh, let's talk about our resource sources. The U.S. is the richest nation in history. There's never been a nation like this. We have 5% of the world's population and one half of the world's wealth. 160 million Christians, American adults claim to be Christian. If each of those 160 million Americans gave $15 a month, that would literally feed all the starving children in the world and provide safe drinking water for all of them and educate every child who's not in school. Just $15 a month. Second Corinthians 8, 9 to 15 says God has entrusted us with the things we have to try to provide some equity. It's interesting to me that the word iniquity also could, it comes from the word inequity. Um, he's trusted us with this wealth. And the only reason he entrusted it uh, to us is so that we would use it to meet the needs of other people. It's the only reason for the excess that we have. It's not to get ahead. I was talking to a friend one time, and I was talking about a a man in our community who farms uh, very simply. He has very old equipment. Uh, He grass feeds his cows. They don't produce as much milk as they would if he uh, tested everything and had everything perfect. And this brother, this was a Christian brother, said to me, well, yeah, you can can live on uh, a farm like that, but you can't get ahead. And I said, well, what do you mean by getting ahead? Well, you can't buy another farm. In other words, you won't make enough money to get ahead. Well, we live in a world of unbelievable opportunity. So what is the, what should be the response? Well, 2 Corinthians 9, 16 to 15 says that God's people are cheerful givers. The word cheerful there is the word hilaros in the Greek. In other words, God's people are hilarious givers. They love to give. They, they, that's the thing they are hilariously committed to. I tell people that when we take up offerings in churches, we should hear chuckles all up and down the pews because it should be a hilarious experience. Uh, <clears throat> Matthew 6, 1 to 14 says that those who give and do it secretly shall be rewarded openly. I sometimes think that the Protestant revolution had us all reacting against means of grace. Because, you know, the Catholic Church says when you take that wafer, you're taking grace. Uh, when you, all the things they tell you to do are means of grace. And it almost seems to me like we reacted against the idea that we could do anything as means of grace. But that passage talks about three things that give us uh, a, an open reward. You can call that grace if you want to. Giving alms, which by the way, the word alms uh, in the Septuagint, often is the same word that is used for righteousness. 
And I understand that the Jewish people considered, uh, okay, the three pillars of Jewish religion were almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. And I'm told that almsgiving was the one that they considered the most important, that your righteousness was determined by your generosity with the things that you had. In fact, it's interesting to me that uh, Matthew 5 gives us, us the kingdom morality, but almsgiving is not in chapter 5. That's not part of the kingdom morality, uh, precisely. You find that in chapter 6, which is the kingdom piety, uh, which uh, shows the spiritual motivation behind the people who live the way people live in chapter 5. And it's interesting to me that almsgiving is in chapter 6, and not only is almsgiving in chapter 6, but it's the only one of those three that Jesus gave uh, an elaboration on. Uh, over half of chapter 6, is devoted to this whole subject of wealth, which is an elaboration of almsgiving. And so it's very interesting to me that most of chapter 6, which is about the kingdom piety or the kingdom dynamic behind the kingdom morality, most of that chapter is taken up by a discussion of almsgiving and what we do with our wealth and laying up treasures in heaven and not laying it up here on this earth. I think it's very interesting how that's placed in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 rather than in chapter 5. So, we will be rewarded in proportion to how much we give. Uh, the Bible teaches that very clearly. Uh, <clears throat> uh, let's see. We, I think we have to look at giving not as an expense. I think we have to look at it uh, according to the way the scripture teaches it as an investment. You know, some people think that uh, when they put money in, in the offering, it's like paying the telephone bill. They'll never see that money again. The fact is, that's the only money they will ever see and the, and enjoy through all eternity. And if we ever if we ever would get our heads around what it really means to give, I think it would solve this problem uh, tremendously. I went to visit my rich uncle one time. He was a multimillionaire, and he drove us around in his uh, uh, Lincoln Continental, and uh, we did all kinds of things. And so he knew what I believed. And so one day he said to me uh, in our visit, well, Johnny, you can't take it with you. You might as well enjoy it here. And now he was a devout uh, believer. Uh, he helped establish the uh, Baptist church in the city where he lived. Uh, he was a very, very uh, devoted member of that church. And I said, Uncle, you're wrong. <laughs> you can take all of this with you, but you have to give it away. You have to give it before you die. Uh, so that statement that you can't take it with you is not true. Jesus made it very clear we can, in fact, take it with us. But he told us how we have to do it. Uh, <clears throat> Isaiah 58, verses 10 and 11. This is a chapter on, on fasting, but it also talks about giving. And it says, if we do, our light will rise in obscurity. God does promise uh, a tremendous response to our giving. Uh, he says we will be rewarded openly. Now, one of the persons that I like to give as an example of what that really means is John Wesley. When we were in England, there was only one place when we visited there that I wanted to see, and that was the Wesley Museum. And interestingly, almost nobody goes to that museum. When we were there, we were, I think, the only people visiting at the time. Well, uh, they originally worshipped in the foundry, but that foundry was too small, and they went up town and built a church. And that was where Wesley spent the last 15 years of his life. In that basement of that church is the Wesley Museum. And 
if you ever visit England, by all means, don't miss that museum. And you will be overwhelmed at the heart of Wesley. Uh, nobody who was in need missed his attention, whether they were slaves, whether they were criminals condemned to death, whether they were uh, just poor people. Wesley had a real heart for the poor. In fact, we are told that in today's money, Wesley made about $160,000 a year. He published about 200 books. Many of them were small, but uh, he made quite a bit of money from his books that he sold. Uh, and they say that in today's money, he earned about $660,000 a year. We're also told that in today's money, he took a salary of about 15000 to $20,000 a year in today's money. And if you read his journal, it's obvious that much of that he gave away. Uh, he was just an amazing person. He provides us with an example of how he saw his possessions in the light of the needs around him. And I'm going to read a little portion of, of his life. Wesley had just finished buying some pictures for his room when one of the chambermaids came to, chambermaids came to his door. It was a winter day, and he noticed that she had only a thin linen gown to wear for protection against the cold. He reached into his pocket to give her some money for a coat and found he had little left. It struck him that the Lord was not pleased with how he had spent his money. He asked himself, Will thy master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast adorned thy walls with the money that might have screened this poor creature from the cold. O justice, O mercy, are not these pictures the blood of this poor maid? Were the pictures that Wesley had hanging in his room wrong? Absolutely not. But it was wrong, very wrong, to buy unnecessary decorations when a woman was freezing outside without a coat. At his death, Wesley left the world, to quote somebody else, this is what somebody said. At his death, Wesley left to the world a battered hat, a worn coat, a tattered Bible, and the Methodist Church. It didn't just happen. That was by, by design. Wesley lived that way. Um, yeah. You know, if you turn to, to Luke chapter, uh, why can't I think of the passage right now? Oh, Luke 16 is my favorite parable. Uh, that's the parable of the unjust steward who gave away his Lord's money, uh, when he was, uh, accused he was going to be thrown out. So what did he decide to do? Give away more of his Lord's money because he said, if I do that, then, the, then when I have needs, they'll meet my needs. I'll, I'll stack up a bunch of IOUs. And his master, even though he shouldn't have done that, that was wrong. He was continuing to be dishonest with his Lord's money. His master commended him. He said he's a wise person. And then the Bible says the children of this age are wiser than the children of light. Everybody knows that if you give away things and create a bunch of IOUs, it's to your benefit. Their masters do not want them to do that. That's dishonest. But we have a master that tells us to do that. He says, give my things away. And we're not smart enough to see that, that it's to our benefit to do what Jesus told us to do. In fact, I want to turn to that passage and I want to read a few verses. In fact, I think Wesley is an example of what happens. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. 
And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Now here's the verse. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Well, what are the true riches? Well, I think they're the kind of gifts that a man like Wesley had uh, in ministry. And I wonder how many people are impoverished spiritually and cannot have a fruitful ministry spiritually because they didn't pass the test. God says, I'm going to give you this stuff that really isn't worth anything. And then I'm going to watch what you do with it. And I'll decide whether I can trust you with things that really uh, are valuable. Uh, that's what he's basically saying. If you there, if therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? So this is a very sobering reality. Uh, the Bible has more to say about this subject. Somebody has said than it has to say about prayer. At Hurricane Katrina, Christians flooded the city with food, water, supplies, labor. It was obvious that the Christians were the ones who came to the relief of of the people in New Orleans. A Jewish doctor said at the end, there are no more agnostics in New Orleans. We had a man visit our church some years ago. His name was Eric Camille. I call him occasionally. He never joined one of our churches. He loved the singing. He loved the preaching. He loved the lifestyle. He loved everything about us. But he said, you people refuse to take the gospel to the streets. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, he and his wife are people of modest means, but they go down to the streets of the city they live in, and I forget where it is, uh, frequently. And uh, simply take a hot plate down there and food and fry eggs and provide breakfast for for people in the poor part of the city. Uh, there are times that they have uh, taken loaves of bread and hung a loaf of bread on every door uh, in in the in the uh, slums of the city. And uh, he did not see us doing that, and he did not join our churches because of it. In fact, every time I call him, he asks me if uh, if there's been a change in that respect, uh, and he probably would join one of our churches if he saw that happening. Uh, that's very sobering. John 15, 9 to 12 tells us uh, that we are to abide in Christ and we will be fruitful. And then he says, these things have I written unto you that your joy, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. I think what we forget is all of the commands of Christ are intended to put us in the center of reality and give us abundance of joy. And uh, this one especially One man told uh, this story. He said, we were studying Mark 10 in Sunday school. And uh, after the class, uh, a few days later, he received an email from one of the uh, uh, members of the church. And in that uh, passage, it talks about selling what you have and giving to the poor. And here's what the email said. They went home from the Sunday school lesson about that. And he says, my wife and I went home, emptied all of our clothes into the bed, onto the bed, got several bags of canned goods and all the baby clothes our son had grown out of, in addition to the toys he doesn't play with anymore. Uh, When he said he emptied all our clothes, I think he means the extra clothes. I took several hundred dollars cash that I was saving to upgrade the front lawn and drove over to the projects downtown and prayed. I prayed for the people I didn't know who were about to receive what I had too much of. In the first house was a man of 30 who had a baby and needed some work clothes. Perfect. 
I had my clothes to give him and the baby toys and clothes. He needed money for groceries, so I gave him $100. The next house had a couple who needed some clothing for the wife and money for a car payment, so I gave her my wife's clothes and $100. We prayed with each family and told them we came with God. I got such a rush from this that we got home and got more things together to give away. My wife and I are now consistently serving at the homeless center downtown, and I'm going to start teaching art and graphics at the homeless learning center. And what he's saying is they got such a rush out of doing that. Uh, what do you do for the rush that uh, you experience? What do you get your kicks out of? Why don't you take $200 in extras and try it? Let's see what happens. <laughs> All right. Tertullian said that the outpouring of sacrificial love was the key factor that led multitudes to Christ in the first century. And it's interesting that after Christianity basically had taken over in the Roman Empire, Julian the Apostate, who was raised by Christians, later tried to restore paganism uh, because he believed... That, by the way, Rome fell after Christianity was established in Rome. It didn't fall under paganism. It fell under uh, uh, when Christians had basically become predominant. Uh, so anyway, Julian saw that Rome was falling and uh, declining, and so he thought, well, the reason for it is because we've forgotten the pagan gods. So he tried to restore paganism, and he failed. And uh, he gave the reason for the failure. He said, these Christians not only take care of their own poor and needy, they take care of ours. And uh, he, he chided the people in his society that they were not givers like the Christians were. We often ask, why we don't have the effect that uh, Christians have had in the past as far as people responding. Uh, I think this is maybe one of the reasons we uh, we do not have the outpouring uh, of sacrificial giving like we should. Now, I want to hasten to say that our plain people are very, very uh, generous people. Uh, you have uh, organizations like CAM, uh, but it's not... In the end, I think what we give, I think in the end, it's the problem of what we have left, what we keep for ourselves and how we, the lifestyle we still maintain in spite of our giving. So Tertullian identified an outpouring of sacrificial lover, love as the key factor that led multitudes to Christ in the first century. Albert Einstein said, the world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. And we are to overcome evil with good. I think that applies here. <clears throat> Gandhi was asked by E. Stanley Jones, what is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? And his answer was the Christians. Suppose the Anabaptists repented of their materialism and became known for their sacrificial and extravagant generosity and obedience to Christ. What might happen in the United States? Uh, we're talking now about the response. Coupled with our non-resistance, suffering love, we would probably have the most powerful testimony to the world. My question is, will we be remembered as the generation that rose up to conquer world poverty and answer the tragedies of worldwide greed and oppression with Christ-like compassion? Is that what our people will be known for? Or will they be known for their good food and for their lavish lifestyles? Or will we be the most selfish generation yet that loved its soft drinks, fancy cars, cosmetics, extravagant clothes, 
expensive electronic gadgets, oversized houses, and costly vacations. Is that what we'd be known for? Will we fiddle while Rome burns? God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Will we insist on a few moments of pleasure or invest in eternal pleasure by rescuing lives of those God loves? Somebody has said it's not the high cost of living, it's the cost of high living. That's the great hindrance to the kingdom. I give this as an example. When I was a boy, my our family was not poor, but we certainly did not have any extra. There were 11 of us children. My father was sick. We tried to eke out a living on a, on a 92-acre farm, uh, and we worked hard. We had a lot of work to do. Uh, my mother washed on Monday, uh, a large washing day, and uh, then my father decided, well, he'd like to make work easier for mom, and so when he was able to afford it, he bought a, her an automatic washer and an automatic dryer, and he put a bathroom in the house. Well, then, whereas we had uh, basically taken a bath on Saturday and changed our clothes on Saturday and mom washed on Monday, now we took a bath every day and changed our clothes every day, and mom had more work to do. Uh, someone has said uh, another example is grandmother had one carpet in the house. All the rest of the floors were bare or had linoleum, but one room had carpet. That was the uh, front room, the parlor. And uh, that didn't get much maintenance. Uh, she went in there and picked up some lint every now and then. And in the spring, she would take up all the tacks. That carpet was not wall-to-wall carpeting. It was tacked down around the edge. She took up all the tacks, took it outside, put it over the clothesline and beat the dust out of it, put it back on the floor. That was about all the maintenance that carpet got. So somebody says, well, let's make work easier for Grandma. Let's buy her a vacuum cleaner. Well, it's not very long before... It wasn't just the carpet in the front room that people had. It was carpet in every room of the house that needed to be swept every every couple days. So that shows us what happens. Uh, it's not the high cost. It's not the cost of high. Li- it's not the high cost of living. It's the cost of high living. When I was a boy, despite all the work we had, we visited uh, our relatives and many people several times a year. We visited on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, any time of the week we children came home from school, said, hey, if we get the work done, can we go visiting? And we would go visiting. Now, I people visit almost never except on Sunday. And there's not nearly the visiting that gets done that did when I was a boy. We visited all my mother's eight brothers and sisters and their families. And my father's, uh, I'm sorry, my mother had uh, 10 brothers and sisters. My father's not eight brothers and sisters. I know we visit all these families at least twice a year, plus uh, most of the families in our church. And so this is what's happening. Uh, instead of the uh, simple bed, we have to have the luxurious bed and uh, the luxurious mattress, which we didn't, by the way, when I was a boy. Uh, most people wouldn't sleep in the beds that we slept in when I was growing up. So that's what's happening. And, and I think that's why fasting is such an ingenious part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, every now and then you need to push the reset button. Instead of finding a, another gourmet restaurant to, uh, uh, for your, uh, jaded senses, just quit eating. And then you will enjoy potatoes without salt or butter. Uh, sleep on the floor and then you'll enjoy the bed that you have and you won't have to have more. So I, I just think that fasting is one of the most ingenious parts of the Sermon on the Mount. I call it the reset button for this, uh, 
luxurious living that we're all tempted in. And it happens to all of us. It, it, it just tends to go the way of the flesh. And every now and then we have to push the reset button and get back to a more simple way of living and have more resources and more focus uh, for other people. Uh, <clears throat> we are in a battle. We're in a battle. And Matthew chapter 10 is a chapter that you should go and read after this message. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 42. In this chapter, Jesus is sending his disciples out uh, to witness, two by two. And uh, the chapter is a picture of a military commander. He says, I'm sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. And he gives the tremendous challenge they're going to face as they go out. So Jesus is a military commander sending soldiers on a mission. In, 19, for, in the 1940s, we have a military ship being built. And this is sort of a parable of what's happening. The U.S. government commissioned William Francis Gibbs to build a ship with the United States line, lines. $80 million was to be put toward building a troop carrier for 15,000 troops. And this, this carrier was supposed to be able to deliver them as speedily as possible anywhere in the world. In 1952, the SS United States was completed. It could travel 51 miles per hour. It could travel 10,000 miles without stopping for food or supplies. It could travel anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. It was the fastest, most reliable troop carrier in the world. The problem is, it never carried any troops. It became a luxury liner for heads of state and celebrities. Instead of 2,000 passengers, it eventually, instead of 15,000 passengers, it eventually carried only 2,000 passengers. It had 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, Five acres of open deck with a heated pool, and it was the first fully air-conditioned passenger ship in the world. In the end, it had been refitted. It was not a vessel for battle, but a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. I think this is a tremendous parable. The church was designed for battle. We're in a war. It was designed to mobilize people to accomplish a mission. Have we turned the church into a luxury liner? Are we willing to change it into a troop carrier for battle? Are we willing to obey the orders of Christ? To be like him? It says in the feeding of the 4,000, after he had preached to these people, it said he had compassion on them. He saw that they were hungry. It often talks about Jesus having bowels of compassion. That's a pretty earthy term. That means that the compassion affected him physically. Will we forsake the comforts that we think we should have to meet the great need and danger of our inner cities, disease-ridden communities in the third world, and hostile regions of the Middle East? Are we willing to make the richest country of the world a means for exalting Christ through the investment of our resources. You know, there's a hymn in our hymnals. Conquering, a church of God who's conquering banners. I'm going to read the, the, sec, the second verse. In your costly temples praying, 
Let thy kingdom come, we pray, are but words of idle meaning, if with these we turn away. Boundless wealth to you is given, from his hand who owns it all, and his eye beholds in heaven, what ye render back to all. You know, if we live as pilgrims, we will have a lot to give. The story is told of an American tourist who visited the renowned British rabbi, Havitz Chaim. He was astonished to see that the rabbi's home was only a simple room filled with books, plus a table and a cot. The tourist said, Rabbi, where is your furniture? The rabbi replied, where is yours? The puzzled American answered, mine? I'm only a tourist. I'm only a visitor here. I'm just passing through. The rabbi replied, so am I. Could anybody looking at our lifestyle honestly say, that person is only passing through? He's not accumulating. He's giving everything he has to meet the needs of the world around him. That's uh, the message. So if you have any questions, we can discuss them. Thank you, brother. Our wealth in our world. Sorry, Sam. No, that's that's fine. Thank you very much. Um, that is very sobering to hear that again. Um, I would like to hear your comments and your questions and where your minds are at after hearing that. Um, one thing about that is it's easy to feel the burden of the need in our world today. You hear the statistics and it's not statistics, it's people, you know, Thousand people, thousand children dying in an hour or something like that. I mean, it's, it's staggering what, how that happens. So it's easy to get stirred up in our hearts. When we hear about these things, you'd have to have a hard heart not to be stirred up and moved. But there's a very practical end to this. And I would like to hear some discussion on what that practical end looks like. I know we heard your response. Um, but how are, for any of you on this call, how are you engaging with this problem in the communities that you live? I know it's easy to get overwhelmed by the need and feel good thinking about answering that need or feel good talking about the need and the possibility of reaching the needs, but it does come down to how are we, um, how are we reaching the people? How are we handling the things that we have? Um, so anyone have any questions or comments? Thank you, John, for, for your message. Um, so there's, obviously we live in the West and, and all of us, a lot of us here on this call are, will be considered the top wealthy people, um, in the world. And I like reminding my children of that, um, at times, um, when we're, when they're comparing, um, ourselves among ourselves that we remember we are very wealthy 
Um, but there's, it, it can be difficult to know what to do with that wealth. Um, you know, there's, there is obviously, you know, nonprofit so we can give to that directly go to the poor. So you think of what happened in Libya recently with that huge flood or what happened, um, in Morocco with the earthquake or Yemen or whatever. There's just all these huge needs. Um, and, and maybe giving our wealth is, is maybe easy <laughs> to do. Um, because that money can just go and someone else can take care of it and we soothe our conscience. But I, I really appreciated though how, you know, you're, you're talking about our resources. You're, you're actually pushing into more, to more than just our wealth, but sacrificial giving. Um, but I guess my question is, what is, what is at the root? Like, what is the root of the solution? Um, to these, to these problems, like some people are, are poor. I mean, a lot of people are poor just because they're broken. You know, poverty, poverty as, as, um, Stephen Corbett says, and when helping hurts is way beyond material things. Like poverty is a holistic issue, whether you are the wealthy person in the West with broken relationships, that's poverty. And he defines poverty in terms of self, others, rest of creation, um, and between God, like four areas help define define poverty. And then this book tries to push into how do you help without hurting and all these things. And one of the one of the things that he talked about of the early early church is a powerful little part. You were touching on the early church and what they did, John. And he 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 has a whole couple of pages on the early church. He said Rather than fleeing the urban cesspools of the early church, which was all the cities, rather than fleeing them, they actually headed into them. And that's where they found their niche. And, um, and it's fascinating today how the wealthy are moving out of the cities. All of a sudden they can now kind of do, uh, do their hybrid of online. Um, work, you know, and so they're heading out of the city as fast as they can. And I think in many ways, our cities are heading into this, the craziness, you know, of, of the Greco Roman world. Um, um, so yeah, so what, maybe what I'm saying is, is think about solution. What is the solution to this, to this need? Like how, how do we go to the heart? Obviously giving money, absolutely. But there's more, and I know that you you were you were talking about that at sacrificialism. Um, there's um, we recently had a brother speak here in State College, uh, and he and he said the opposite of of poverty is community, mm-hmm. and it's a it was a provocative statement. But when you think about that, when you bring someone into community, into sacred community, into the church. It's then that they can actually experience this, this shalom in all, in every, in every way. And, and we can, as a church, work together to help each other. That's, that's where true change happens is how you, that's, that's the solution. It, it was a fascinating talk. It's worth listening to. It's on the All Nations Bible Commission YouTube channel by Merle Burke Holder. Opposite of poverty is community. Um, and so 
Yeah, I'm just curious, as you think about us, 21st century, Anabaptist, North American, obviously not everyone on here or our listeners are that, um, but how can we go the whole way or what is a holistic response? Well, I think we have to go right back to John the Baptist and Jesus. And we have to realize that sin is essentially selfishness. You know, on the billboard calls, I'm often asked to define sin, and I used to give a rather theological definition, and then we'd have a disagreement in the end. And so I tried really hard to think what word defines what sin really is. And it is selfishness. That is what it is. And that's helpful to me because now I know that when I'm being selfish, I, you know, here's, I'm sitting in my easy chair and there's a need uh, in front of me, but I'm too lazy to get up and meet it. That, that's selfishness. That's sin. And I think that's why John said, uh, an evidence for repentance is what you do with your extra stuff. And that's why Zacchaeus was immediately declared a saved man because he demonstrated that there was a change in this area. This is the area where the change has to take place. The whole issue of selfishness. And I know people, and, and this will this will be a conscious choice in every area of life because we are by nature selfish, and that's what the grace of God does. It gives us the power to overcome that, but it's a day-to-day decision. And so I like the term voluntary poverty. When I first started to use that term, people really reacted to it because they thought poverty was destitution, and people came to visit me, and they expected me to be living in a house with a dirt floor. Uh, if you look at the word poverty in the dictionary, it means to live below the accepted level. So that's what it means. It literally means to live below the accepted level. And I think all Christians, by that definition, embrace a voluntary poverty if they're true Christians. They refuse to keep pressing toward a higher and higher level of living. They learn to be content with what they have, and they use their means then to help other people. I don't know if that helps you or not, but it, it's going to be a conscious decision. I tell people the only thing that happens automatically is sin. Everything else is a matter of conscious decisions and discipline by the grace of God. One thing I found in my own experience is it feels like there's insulators between us and you think of local community. I mean, um, Brother Bryant talked about sending money away and that's something we've wrestled with often. It's easy to do that, but that's not meeting the needs in the community I'm in. I mean, it is blessing someone, you know, in a war-torn country or something like that. Uh, but there seems to be insulators that our society has put up or we do in our own minds between us and the needs. You mentioned sitting in the easy chair and seeing a need and then not doing something about it. That is a sin. Um, but how do we see the needs? That's what, that's what I'm wrestling with in my own life is, what is going to, I mean, it's obvious I can drive downtown and see homeless people and drug addicts on the streets and I can give to them. But I also know that in a city, there's a large demographic of people that aren't downtown that have greater needs with small children in the homes and, and higher poverty level, one paycheck away from losing the children or losing the things that they have. How do we see that? Um, and I'm going to share what my conclusion to that is, is it is a work in my own heart to be able to see that need. 
I, it, it, it's conversations with the people at the checkout. It's, it's conversations with the person you're working with or whatever you're stumbling into and asking questions, you know, how, how are things going with you? Um, and having some of those uncomfortable conversations or how can I pray for you? And, and then hear what people's response is to that. Um, brother Brian brought up the, what is the answer? to the needs in the world today? Is it just giving more money? And I love that line that community is the answer to poverty. I read a book a while back on hunger. And so my wife and I had been talking about how are we going to reach hungry people in our community? I read a book about global hunger. I thought, you know, I'm going to find a solution. Very hopeful, positive about it. Started reading the book and it made me very angry because I realized that this is a huge problem. Uh, world hunger has more to do with corrupt and evil men than it does with a shortage of food or lack of funding. And I, I began to despair. How are we in Western Canada going to address world hunger? And by the end of the book, I had a sense of hope and felt like I had a bit of a solution for it. And it's the solution that Christ had. And it comes from, it's the same idea that community is the answer to poverty. The church is the answer to poverty in our communities. But, you know, it's easy to make a punchy statement like that. And, but we have to think about what that actually looks like for us from day to day. Well, I'm often asked by billboard callers about suffering in the world and why God doesn't do something about it. And the truth of the matter is he did. He sent Christ and he instituted an organization, an organism called the church, and he gave us the task. And uh, part of it is the way the gospel has been preached. I mean, is this message even part of the gospel? Suppose when the gospel was taken to Russia a thousand years ago, this had been part of the message. That it's wrong to accumulate wealth. That it's wrong to fight. It's wrong to kill. The Marxists would have never had any appeal. There'd have been no communism in Russia if the church had given this message and had demonstrated it and had instituted these principles in the society of of Russia. And so it, it all of a sudden struck me one day when one of the callers asked that question. Yes, God did do something about it. And he's watching to see if what he instituted actually grips us and and, and the church sets about to, to accomplish this task by the way it preaches, by the way, the example that it gives and what happens where when the church goes uh, to a certain mission field. What happens? I mean, it, it, is this part of the message? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite, and I think we have to rest not only in this area, but also in our witnessing. It's God's not looking at what we get accomplished. He's looking at how we have responded, uh, whether anybody responds to our message, whether we solve the problem of poverty. That's beside the point. The point is, how are we living? Are we living a sacrificial life, getting the message out, setting a good example, using our resources? That's what God's going to look at. And like Luke 16, he's also going to look at that and decide how much gifting he's going to give us spiritually. May I say something? Sure. Go ahead. Radical kindness is the uh, answer. And we've talked about that before, me and you, John. 
I, and the second thing that I see is say, well, I'm anti book. So it's going to seem um, a little, when Jesus came into the world, he did not go to the local library and read about how to do it. He just went and did it. And unfortunately, sometimes we look to the books before we do anything and we get these preconceived notions of how to do it. If you just go out and just start talking to people and I've heard time and time again, well, that's easy for you, but I practiced this my whole life. So I have conversations with people whose lives are terrible, but once I get them, if I take them into a place where I force them to do what I'm doing, then they're going to want to run. And I, I, I realize that if I just treat them as a human being and listen to them, even though they're not living the way I need them to live or want them to live or how Jesus wants them to live, you just have a friendship with them. Sooner or later, by osmosis, most people start to move their position. But I'm an oddball. So, you know, that's my opinion. I know Patrick personally, and he does practice what he just said. It's been a tremendous inspiration. I love that radical kindness. Thank you, Patrick. Yeah, you're, you're a beautiful example of that. He touched on talking about it versus just going out and doing it. Any other task that we do, if we wonder how to do it, I mean, obviously, if it's a high stakes task or dangerous, we're going to learn something about it first. So there, there might be some, some homework to do, but I found that doing something is probably the quickest way to learn how to do it. Um, just, just start practicing it and experience will teach you a lot more than theorizing. We've got a great community of people that believe Jesus and follow Jesus, but they're caught on paralysis through analysis. They spend so long researching how to do something that they do nothing, and the practice of researching it becomes the practice of doing, and that's the unfortunate thing. Yeah, that's so often the case. Does anyone else have any questions or comments on this? Morning, John. Well, I think if we... John, can you hear me? Pardon? John, can you hear me? It's very uh, faint. Very faintly. Okay. This is Jonas, Jonas Nunswander. Thank you for your message this morning. Uh, where, where did this, this is a very important subject, and where did this, when did this get lost? Church. When did the church quit? Or when, when did it get lost? I'm not sure I can answer that question. I do know what happens. Most discussions on this subject go to the parables of the talents and uh, emphasizes how we are supposed to increase uh, what God has given us materially. 
and somehow that will result in in uh, even greater ability to give. Uh, that's that's what I heard growing up. Uh, if I heard a subject on, on stewardship, at the end of the subject, basically what I had heard was a biblical defense of the American dream. Uh, and we, we've got to begin to teach what Jesus taught on this subject. He said more on this subject than any other. It has been interesting to me. I live among Old Order Mennonites, and this subject is a much greater discussion among them than it is among us. Uh, for years, they discouraged their people, for instance, to be dairy farmers because dairy farmers got rich. Uh, and you'll hear a lot more discussion among our old order people on this subject. Uh, and if you buy anything from them, uh, you will probably buy it at a better price than you will buy it anywhere else. I mean, they, they really do teach against accumulating wealth. Now, that's, I think that's maybe changing and maybe you're seeing something different in some of their communities. But it was interesting to me to find that old order Amish and older uh, uh, Mennonites have, have taught against the accumulation of wealth much more than, than our mainline Mennonite churches. In fact, our, our bishop had uh, somebody come to buy a tractor from him. Two old order Mennonites came. Uh, he had a tractor for sale. And uh, he told this story one Sunday. He said they looked over the tractor, and after a bit, one of them said to the other one, uh, there's, a, there's, there's one thing that's wrong with this deal. And... Uh, Brother Harvey thought they were going to say he's charging too much for the tractor, but they said he's not charging enough. This tractor is worth more than what he's charging, and they paid him the price they thought it was worth. That really was an interesting story to me. How many times does that happen? (laughs) Can you prove your own point there, John? The fact that... Go Go ahead, Rob. You prove your own point there. The fact that you're still telling the story proves the point. Mm -hmm. It made an impact on Harvey, and he worked it in a message. It made an impact on you, and you're still telling the story today. Yes. Somebody else was saying something. It's the exact same way as us going going to a garage sale, and we see a, a, a tool that we could use marked for $10, and it's worth $50. Do we give them the the 50 or do we just ask them if they would take five for it and that's that that's still the christian concept imagine the effect that would have if you did that at garage sale oh that'd be tremendous one thing we that has struck me recently is we we see god as being generous we see God as pouring out. We love the promises about pouring out, about giving when it's not deserved, about all of these things. And it's it in thinking about this subject, don't we want to be like our father? We we gratefully turn to him with hands wide open, just praising him for pouring out and turn around and say, well, it's good stewardship for me to drive a hard bargain here. That that strikes me, that um, we are grateful for the abundance from the Father, but we live, I've been convicted deeply about this in the, past, in the last few weeks, but tend to live with pretty tight grips on the things that we have. Yeah, well, let's remember, God loves a hilarious giver. 
And I remind you that my favorite uh, verse comes right after that. God is able to make all grace abound, unlimited, towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound into every good work. And that's in the context of you being a hilarious giver. If God sees you respond that way, he responds in kind. Question for you, John. Have we, have we jumped too deep into the pool of stewardship? Have we, have we majored on that to, to the detriment of generosity and giving that stewardship is our default position? And I've, I've wrestled with this some. And somebody else said actually stewardship involves generosity. If it's all God's, I can afford to give it away. If it's mine, I do need to take care of it and hoard it. And, and, and probably get more. If it truly is God's, I, I can give it away and that's okay. Amen. Amen. And he tells us. Have, have, have we gone too far on stewardship? I guess is my question. You know, the, the messages on stewardship means really manage it well <laughs> so that it increases. <laughs> I'm listening to screw tape letters and screw tape has a laugh that the humans think that the things that they have are theirs. And that, that struck me. He, the, the CS Lewis says that this demon is chuckling because we think that the things we have are ours. Yes. This is very thought, thought provoking. Um, was there someone else that had something? I, mean, I thought I heard someone talking. Go ahead. Yeah, this is Belvin King. Can you hear me? Yep. So what does the word stewardship actually mean? I uh, dug into that a while back. And the word stewardship, or the word steward, comes from the same Greek word that the word dispensation comes from, which means distribution. I've kind of changed my mind on the word stewardship. I used to think it kind of means to manage wisely and to multiply. But I think it means a little bit more of a, uh, or has a more of a meaning of distributing what's given to you. Yeah, it means we do with it what the person who owns it wants us to do with it. That's what it means. That's a good perspective. Well, I think we could go on and on with this. Um, I hope this has been as challenging for you as it has been for me. Um, it is a, a very good thing hey, to think about daily. What are we doing I was with the tra- things that we have? Go ahead. Sam, I'm sorry. I was looking for the um, title of one book. It's called Rooting for Rivals. Mm-hmm. Um, stewardship, Just I'll, I'll mention that book so somebody can read it. It basically says that we think we're going to aim the nonprofit. We think we're going to get everything. And so we got to hoard it. The reality is God's already intended what you're going to get. So treat this stuff like it's trinkets and what you're supposed to get, you will and what other people will get, they'll get also. So it's just a mindset on how to handle in a nonprofit proceeds. Thank you for recommending a book, Patrick. Love it. <laughs> no, I, I do read extensively. I just 
and anti. Um, <laughs> great, great book. I can't submit. I have to be rebellious. Love it. Yeah, it's good. I think we'll bring this to a close here. I think if we need an example of uh, someone who used resources well, I think we can look at the life of Christ. Um, what did he do? Do we want to know how to address the needs in our communities? Be in the community. Be compassionate. Have your eyes open. Talk to the people. Go into their houses. Have meals with them. Meet their needs in every way you possibly can. And that's going to come in all different sizes. It can be kind words. It could be a meal. It can be handing them some money. It can be providing some clothes. But that takes actually being in your community with your eyes open and your heart compassionate to actually be able to see those things and address those needs. Thank you, Brother John, for coming on this morning. We appreciate your contribution to Strength to Strength and for this challenging message. And thank you all for joining us here this morning, early on a Saturday morning. Um, it's wonderful to be able to meet in this way and to be edified by the preaching of truth. Um, before we close, Brother John, would you mind saying a prayer for us? Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Oh God, reclothe us in our rightful mind. In pure lives, thy service find. And, O oh God, help us to have a true repentance, which you clearly have taught, means that we do the right things with the things that we have. And so, Lord, help us through this day and every day to become more and more sensitive to the needs right around us and be known as people who are generous and never as people who drive a hard bargain. Oh, God, bless us this day with your grace, according to the way we give, give to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all again for joining us this morning. Um, in two weeks, October the 7th, we will have Brother Glenn Martin from Strength to Strength here. He will share with us on God Wins at Midnight, and that's on October 7th. Same place, same time. Um, feel free to join us again for that message um, for Brother Glenn. Um, God be with you all. I hope your hearts have been stirred to serve like our master and like our king. Um, go with God and go in peace. Iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.